Did you know that whenever you use a website, you give them permission to track what you do online? If you keep the tab open, they can see what you do and create a digital footprint of you. Well, with Surfshark Antivirus, not only will you never have to worry about downloading any risky files, but all of your web browsing will be protected, guaranteeing that you can search freely without leaving any digital footprint, and guaranteeing that you can't be tracked online. If you feel like your online protection should be better, use the link in the description and episode notes to get 76% off Surfshark Antivirus today, and feel safe every day on your devices. I live in Europe, and it's incredibly easy to travel here. By bus, train or plane, I can be in any other European country in a matter of hours, for pretty cheap. But while I'm in other countries, I still want to check my emails, check my YouTube analytics and all that fun stuff. Well, by using Surfshark VPN, I changed my location to France using one of their 3200 plus servers, and I'm no longer annoyed by thousands of emails from Google freaking out saying, Oh my god, there's a computer in Spain trying to hack you! There isn't Google. It's me. And thanks to Surfshark, I'm no longer bothered by these annoying messages. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 per month on a two-year plan, and log into all your accounts anywhere with zero hassle and no annoying emails. Hello, and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. Let's get started. The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne Chapter 10 The Leech and His Patient Old Roger Chillingworth, throughout life, had been calm and temperate, kindly, though not of warm affections, but ever, and in all his relations with the world, a pure and upright man. He had begun an investigation, as he imagined, with the severe and equal integrity of a judge, desirous only of truth, even as if the question involved no more than the air-drawn lines and figures of a geometric problem, instead of the human passions and wrong inflicted on himself. But, as he proceeded, a terrible fascination, a kind of fierce, though still calm, necessity seized the old man with its grip, and never set him free again until he had done all its bidding. He now dug into the poor clergyman's heart like a miner searching for gold, or rather, like a sexton diving into a grave, possibly in quest of a jewel that had been buried on the dead man's bosom, but likely to find nothing save mortality and corruption. Alas for his own soul, if these were what he sought. Sometimes a light glimmered out of the physician's eyes, burning blue and ominous like the reflection of a furnace, or, let us say, like one of those gleams of ghastly fire that darted out from Bunyan's awful doorway in the hillside and quivered on the pilgrim's face. The soil where this dark miner was working had perchance shown indications that encouraged him. This man he said, and one such moment to himself, pure as they deem him, or spiritual as he seems, hath inherited a strong animal nature from his father or his mother. Let us dig a little further into the direction of this vein. Then, after long search into the minister's dim interior, and turning over many precious metals in the shape of high aspirations for the welfare of his race, warm love of souls, pure sentiments, natural piety strengthened by thought and study, and illuminated by revelation, all of which invaluable gold was perhaps no better than rubbish to the seeker, he would turn back, discouraged, and begin his quest towards another point. He groped along as stealthily, 
with as cautious a tread and as wary an outlook as a thief entering a chamber where a man lies only half asleep, or it may be broad awake, with purpose to steal the very treasure which this man guards as the apple of his eye. In spite of his premeditated carefulness, the floor would now again creak, his garments would rustle, the shadow of his presence in a forbidden proximity would be thrown across the victim. In other words, Mr. Dimmersdale, whose sensibility of nerve often produced the effect of spiritual intuition, would become vaguely aware that something inimical to his peace had thrust itself into relation with him. But old Roger Chillingworth too had perceptions that were almost intuitive. And when the minister threw his startled eyes towards him, there the physician sat. His kind, watchful, sympathising, but never intrusive, friend. Yet Mr. Dimmersdale would perhaps have seen this individual's character more perfectly if a certain morbidness, to which all sick hearts are liable, had not rendered him suspicious of all mankind. Trusting no man as his friend, he could not recognise his enemy when the latter actually appeared. He therefore still kept up familiar intercourse with him, daily receiving the old physician in his study, or visiting the laboratory, and, for recreation's sake, watching the process by which weeds were converted into drugs of potency. One day, leaning his forehead on his hand, and his elbow on the sill of the open window that looked towards the graveyard, he talked with Roger Chillingworth while the old man was examining a bundle of unsightly plants. Where? asked he with a look of accents at them, for it was the clergyman's peculiarity that he seldom, nowadays, looked straight forth at any object, whether human or inanimate. Where, my kind doctor, did you gather those herbs with such dark, flabby leaf? Even in the graveyard, here at hand, answered the physician, continuing his employment. They are new to me. I found them growing on a grave which bore no tombstone, no other memorial of the dead man save these ugly weeds that have taken upon themselves to keep him in remembrance. They grow out of his heart, and typify, it may be, some hideous secret that was buried with him, and which he had done better to confess during his lifetime. Perchance, said Mr. Dimmersdale, he earnestly desired it, but could not. And wherefore, rejoined the physician, wherefore not, since all the powers of nature call so earnestly for the confession of sin? And wherefore, rejoined the physician, wherefore not, since all the powers of nature call so earnestly for the confession of a sin that these black weeds have sprung up out of a buried heart to make manifest an unspoken crime? That, good sir, is but a fantasy of yours, replied the minister. There can be, if I forebode all right, no power short of the divine mercy, to disclose, whether by uttered words, or by type or emblem, the secrets that may be buried with a human heart. The heart, making itself guilty of such secrets, must perforce hold them to the day when all hidden things shall be revealed. Nor have I so read or interpreted holy writ as to understand that the disclosure of human thoughts and deeds, then to be made, is intended as part of the retribution. That, surely, or a shallow view of it. No, these revelations, unless I gracefully err, are meant merely to promote the intellectual satisfaction of all intelligent beings, who will stand waiting on that day to see the dark problem of this life made plain. A knowledge of men's heart will be needful to the completest solution of that problem. And I conceive, moreover, that the hearts holding such miserable secrets as you speak of will yield them up, at that last day, with not reluctance, but with a joy unutterable. Then why not reveal them here? asked Roger Chillingworth, 
glancing quietly aside at the minister. Why should not the guilty ones soon avail themselves of this unutterable solace? They mostly do, said the clergyman, gripping hard at his breast as if it afflicted him with an inopportunate throb of pain. Many, many a poor soul hath given its confidence to me, not only on the deathbed, but while strong in life and fair in reputation. And ever, after such an outpouring, oh, what a relief have I witnessed in those sinful brethren, even as in one who at last draws free air after long sifting with his own polluted breath. How can it be otherwise? Why should a wretched man, guilty, we will say, of murder, preface to keep a dead corpse buried in his own heart, rather than fling it forth at once and let the universe take care of it? Yet some men bury their secrets thus, observed the calm physician. True, there are such men, answered Mr. Dimmesdale. But not to suggest more obvious reasons, it may be that they are kept silent by the very constitution of their nature. Or, can we not suppose it, guilty as they may be, retaining nevertheless a zeal for God's glory and man's welfare, they shrink from displaying themselves, black and filthy, in the view of man, because, thenceforth, no good can be achieved by them. No evil of the past be redeemed by better service. So, to their own unutterable torment, they go about among their fellow creatures, looking pure as new-fallen snow, while their hearts are all speckled and spotted with iniquity, of which they cannot rid themselves. These men deceive themselves, said Roger Chillingworth, with somewhat more emphasis than usual, and making a slight gesture with his forefinger. They fear to take up shame that rightfully belongs to them. Their love for man, their zeal of God's service. These holy impulses may or may not coexist in their hearts with evil inmates to which their guilt has unbarred the door, and which must needs propagate a hellish breed within them. But if they seek to glorify God, let them not lift heavenward their unclean hands. If they would serve their fellow man, let them do it by making manifest the power and reality of conscience, and constraining them to the penitential self-abasement. Wouldst thou have me believe, O wise and pious friend, that a false show can be better, can be more for God's glory or man's welfare than God's own truth? Trust me, such men deceive themselves. It may be so, said the young clergyman indifferently, as waving a discussion that he considered irrelevant or unseasonable. He had a ready faculty, indeed, of escaping from any topic that agitated his too sensitive and nervous temperament. But now I would ask of my well-skilled physician whether in good sooth he deems me to have profited by his kindly care of this weak frame of mine. Before Roger Chillingworth could answer, they heard the clear, wild laughter of a young child's voice proceeding from the adjacent burial ground. Looking instinctively from the open window, for it was summertime, the minister beheld Hester Prynne and Little Pearl passing along the footpath that transversed the enclosure. Pearl looked as beautiful as the day, but was in one of those moods of perverse merriment, which, whenever they occurred, seemed to remove her entirely out of the sphere of human sympathy or human contact. She now skipped, irreverently, from one grave to another, until, coming to the broad, flat, amorial tombstone of a departed worthy, perhaps Jason Isaacs himself, she began to dance upon it. In reply to her mother's command and entreaty that she would behave more decorously, Little Pearl paused to gather the prickly burrs from a tall burdock which grew beside the tomb. Taking a handful of these, she arranged them along the lines of the scarlet letter that decorated the maternal bosom to which the burrs, as their nature, 
tenaciously adhered. Hester did not pluck them off. Roger Chillingworth had by this time approached the window and smiled grimly down. There is no law, no reverence for authority, no regard for human ordinances or opinions, right or wrong, mixed up with that child's composition, remarked he as much to himself as to his companion. I saw her the other day, the spat of the governor himself with water at a cattle trough in Spring Lane. What even in heaven's name is she? Is the imp altogether evil? Has she affections? Has she any discoverable principle of being? None save the freedom of a broken law, answered Mr. Dimmersdale in a quiet way, as if he had been discussing the point with himself. Whether capable of good, I know not. The child probably overheard their voices, for, looking up to the window with a bright but naughty smile of mirth and intelligence, she threw one of the prickly burrs at the Reverend Mr. Dimmersdale. The sensitive clergyman shrank with nervous dread from the light missile. Detecting his emotion, Pearl clasped her little hands in the most extravagant ecstasy. Hester Prynne, likewise, had involuntarily looked up, and all these four persons, old and young, regarded one another, in silence, till the child laughed aloud and shouted, Come away, mother, come away, or yonder old black man will catch you. He hath got hold of the minister already. Come away, mother, or he will catch you. But he cannot catch little Pearl. So she drew her mother away, skipping, dancing, and frisking fantastically among the hillocks of dead people, like a creature that had nothing in common with a bygone and buried generation, nor owned herself akin to it. It was as if she had been made afresh out of new elements, and must perforce be permitted to live her own life, and be a law unto herself without her eccentricities being reckoned to her for a crime. There goes a woman, resumed Roger Chillingworth after a pause, who, be her demerits what they may, hath none of that mystery of hidden sinfulness which you deem so grievous to be born. Is Hester Prynne the less miserable, think you, for that scarlet letter of her breast? I do verily believe it, answered the clergyman. Nevertheless, I cannot answer for her. There was a look of pain in her face which I would have gladly been spared the sight of, but still, methinks, it must needs be better for the sufferer to be free to show his pain, as this poor woman Hester is, than to cover it up in all his heart. There was another pause, and the physician began anew to examine and arrange the plants which he had gathered. You inquired of me a little time agone, he said at length, my judgment as touching your health. I did answered the clergyman, and would gladly learn it. Speak frankly, I pray you, be it life or death. Freely then, and plainly, said the physician, still busy with his plants but keeping a wary eye on Mr. Dimmersdale, the disorder is a strange one. Not so much in itself, nor as outwardly manifested, in so far at least, as the symptoms have been laid open to my observations. Looking daily at you, my good sir, and watching the tokens of your aspect now for months gone by, I should deem you a man sore sick, if may be, yet not so sick but that an instructed and watchful physician might well hope to cure you. But I know not what to say. The disease is what I seem to know, yet know it not. You speak in riddles, learned sir, said the pale minister, glancing aside out of the window. Then, to speak more plainly, continued the physician, and I crave pardon, sir, should it seem to require pardon for this needful plainliness of my speech. Let me ask as your friend, as one having charge under providence of your life and physical well-being, 
hath all the operation of this disorder been fairly laid open and recounted to me. How can you question it? answered the minister. Surely it were child's play to call in a physician and then hide the sore. You would tell me then that I know all, said Roger Chillingworth deliberately, and fixing an eye bright with intense and concentrated intelligence on the minister's face. Be it so. But again, he, to whom only the outward and physical evil is laid open, knoweth oftentimes but half the evil which he is called upon to cure. A bodily disease, which we look upon as a whole and entire within itself, may, after all, be but a symptom of some ailment in the spiritual part. Your pardon again, good sir, if by speech give the shadow of offence. You, sir, of all men whom I have known, are he whose body is closest conjoined and imbued and identified, so to speak, with the spirit whereof it is the instrument. Then I need ask no further, said the clergyman, somewhat hastily rising from his chair. You deal not, I take it, in medicine for the soul. Thus a sickness, continued Roger Chillingworth, going on in an unaltered tone, without heeding the interruption, but standing up, confronting the emaciated white-cheeked minister with his low, dark and misshapen figure. A sickness, a sore place, if we may so call it, in your spirit, hath immediately its appropriate manifestation in your bodily frame. Would you, therefore, that your physician heal the bodily evil? How may this be, unless you first lay open to him the wound or trouble in your soul? No, not to thee, not to an earthly physician, cried Mr. Dimmersdale passionately, and turning his eyes full and bright, and with a kind of fierceness, on old Roger Chillingworth. Not to thee, but if it be the soul's disease, then I do commit myself to the one physician of the soul. He, if it stand with his good pleasure, can cure, or he can kill. Let him do with me as, in his justice and wisdom, he shall see good. But who art thou that meddlest in this matter, that dares thrust himself between the sufferer and his God? With a frantic gesture, he rushed out of the room. It is as well to have made this step said Roger Chillingworth to himself, looking after the minister with a grave smile. There is nothing lost. We shall be friends again, anon. But see, now, how passion takes hold upon this man, and hurrieth him out of himself. As with one passion, so with another. He hath done a wild thing ere now, this pious master Dimmersdale, in the hot passion of his heart. It proved not difficult to re-establish the intimacy of the two companions, on the same footing and in the same degree as heretofore. The young clergyman, after a few hours of privacy, was sensible that the disorder of his nerves had hurried him into an unseeming outbreak of temper, which there had been nothing in the physician's words to excuse or palliate. He marvelled, indeed, at the violence with which he had thrust back the kind old man, when merely proffering the advice which was his duty to bestow, and which the minister himself had expressly sought. With these remorseful feelings, he lost no time in making the amplest apologies, and besought his friend to still continue with care, which, if not successful in restoring him to health, had, in all probability, been the means of prolonging his feeble existence to that hour. Roger Chillingworth readily assented, and went on with his medical supervision of the minister, doing his best for him in all good faith, but always quitting the patient's apartment at the close of a professional interview with a mysterious and puzzled smile upon his lips. This expression was invisible in Mr. Dimmerdale's presence, but it grew strongly evident as the physician crossed the threshold.
A rare case, he muttered. I must needs look deeper into it. A strange sympathy betwixt soul and body. Were it only for the art's sake, I must search this matter to the bottom. It came to pass, not long after the scene above recorded, that the Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale, at noonday, and entirely unawares, fell into a deep, deep slumber, sitting in his chair with a large, black-letter volume open before him on the table. It must have been a work of vast ability in the somniferous school of literature. The profound depth of the minister's repose was the more remarkable inasmuch as he was one of those persons whose sleep, ordinarily, is as light, as fitful, and as easily scared away as a small bird hopping on a twig. To such an unwanted remoteness, however, had his spirit now withdrawn into itself, that he stirred not in his chair when old Roger Chillingworth, without any extraordinary precaution, came into the room. The physician advanced directly in front of his patient, laid his hand upon his bosom, and thrust aside the vestment that hitherto had always covered it, even from the professional eye. Then indeed Mr. Dimmesdale shuddered and slightly stirred. After a very brief pause, the physician turned away. But with what wild look of wonder, joy, and horror! With what ghastly rapture, as it were, too mighty to be expressed only by the eyes and features, and therefore bursting forth through the whole ugliness of his figure, and making itself even righteously manifest as the extravagant gestures with which he threw up his arms towards the ceiling and stamped his foot upon the floor. Had a man seen old Roger Chillingworth at that moment of his ecstasy, he would have had no need to ask how Satan comports himself when a precious man's soul is lost to heaven and won into his kingdom. But what distinguished the physician's ecstasy from Satan's was the trait of wonder in it. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, do subscribe because there's more to come. And if you're listening on podcast, please leave a review. It is the best way to help get this in front of as many people as possible. And reading your reviews really makes my day. Once again, thank you for listening. And until next time, bye bye.